This is the Virginia Woolf podcast, which is made in association with Literature Cambridge. My name is Dr. Karina Yakubovic, and in this series, I discuss one of our greatest writers with a host of fascinating guests, all of whom are united by one thing. They're all fans of Virginia Woolf. We started our second season by celebrating the centenary of Jacob's Room. It's a brilliant book, and I was reluctant to leave it behind, but we needed to move on to Pastures New. And I was in the process of figuring out what we might do for episode two when I heard that after five years of planning, a statue of Virginia Woolf was finally being unveiled in Richmond. Those of you who listened to season one will know that I've been following this project closely. Last year, I spoke to sculptor Laurie Desengremel and writer Peter Fulliger about their efforts to get the statue funded. Our conversation took place in the wake of the controversy around Mary Wollstonecraft's monument in Newington Green, and it transpired that Wolf's statue represented a renewed attempt to honour a woman of note. It also marked an important moment for wolf enthusiasts because if it went ahead, this was going to be the first life-size statue of Virginia Woolf anywhere in the world. So when I heard that the statue was ready, there was no doubt in my mind as to what our second episode would be about. On the 16th of November, I took the train to Richmond, Surrey. This was the town where Virginia had lived for 10 years between 1914 and 1924. It was in Richmond where she co-founded the Hogarth Press and where she wrote Jacob's Room and most of Mrs Dalloway. The small crowd that had gathered for the unveiling was standing on a riverside path where Wolf might well have walked her dog over a hundred years ago. We'd like to give our thanks to the sculptor Laurie Dizon-Gramel for creating such a wonderful tribute to the writer. Our statue of Virginia seeks to challenge the myth of the tortured genius and depicts the author enjoying her day, smiling and perhaps ruminating on her next novel. It's a beautiful statue, Laurie. Very, very beautiful. And it's a beautiful place for it to be. And I'm sorry about this one climbing on the statue, but um, I think he's meeting his great, great aunt for the first time. Well, here she is. The first life-size statue of Virginia Woolf. We've had life-size statues of all these brilliant modernists, most of them men, but thus far, the only statue we've had of Wolf has been an unfinished bust. But today, that's all changed. I'm here with Laurie Dissengremel, who we interviewed only recently, it feels like, not long ago, but it was a while ago now, about a year. It was a year ago, yeah. Yes, to discuss mm. the statue and how it was progressing. And I know we asked you a lot of questions about it then, but how does it feel to stand here today now that it's actually done and it's in situ? You know, it's such a great honor to have been asked to do it. And so to find and it has been a long time in coming, which which surprised me because Virginia Woolf is so deserving of a tribute like this. I thought it was a bit weird that one could raise, you know, funds for a boxer more readily than one could for an author, you know. But anyway, it is an amazing sculpture, I think, in terms of the reaction that it produces. And so it just feels really good. 
Yeah, and I, I imagine it, it does. It's, it's something to be proud of. It's a huge achievement and it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful piece of art as well as a, a representation of an artist herself, you know, a writer. Thank you. I think when I make a sculpture, it, that's always an important part for me. It doesn't, it, you know, beyond the fact that it's Virginia Woolf, does it look like an interesting piece? Does it flow? Does it have some, you know? Absolutely. And since you said that, I wonder if you could describe it to us because obviously our listeners can't see it and you know it so well. It's Virginia Woolf sitting on a bench in a happy moment. And she's in repose. You know, she's sitting there. And uh, she's maybe just thinking about her next book. Who knows? And it's up to us to sort of guess what's going on. Yeah. And you can sit next to her. And that's the beauty of it. I really love the fact that it's just on the pavement. People can sit next to it. People have been wanting to sit next to it ever since it's been unveiled. Yes. We're watching people do this right now. We can see them. We've got a young girl now. Um, with her hand on Virginia's knee. It's really sweet. Yes, and earlier she was holding an umbrella yes. to try to shield her from the rain. Yes. This is my granddaughter. Is it? <laughs> yes. ah, you, you mentioned in your speech at the unveiling that you were hoping it would have an impact on young women. Yeah, I mean, young men, w- women and young men too. Mm. This is, I mean, it's on everyone. But for sure, we, you know, women need role models and we don't have enough statuary of role model women. We have plenty of men sitting up there on their pedestals and or not on their pedestals or whatever but we have loads and loads of representations of men and not enough of women and this is going a little ways towards redressing that imbalance absolutely and it is a lovely reimagining as well of how statues should work how we place people that we're trying to commemorate i mean the fact that she's on a bench is is just wonderful yeah and i did my research you know because it had to be that time period when she was living in in richmond Mm. um i had to find the pictures of her when she is smiling and happy because of course there one can find some where she looks more pensive or you know a bit more somber and this is the the happy the happy virginia that is a good point, that it's not sort of Virginia in all times and all places. This no, is a Richmond, Virginia. it's a, it's a Virginia. moment in time, too. Yeah. I'm here with Sophie Partridge, who is a great, great niece of Virginia Woolf. And I wanted to ask you, Sophie, when you see this statue, I mean, what do you think? I think she looks very natural, and that's what strikes me, and approachable as well. Mm-hmm. And somebody who might, one might almost want to confide in, you know. That's the, sort of, the impression I get. Are you hoping that's the impression that other people will get as they walk past? I do, I hope so. I think she's too long been seen as this sort of person who's rather unapproachable and I don't think that's the fair picture of her. The impression I got of her through my family was she was, you know, she was a woman of many colours and facets and, you know, complex and... It's too easy to sort of typecast people, isn't it? That's the easy thing to do. It's more complex to just include everything. Perhaps it doesn't fit people's narrative to think sometimes she was funny and, you know, loved life because she's been so defined by the way she died. And I think that's that's our loss. They had a lot of fun. I mean, my family knew how to have fun. You know, she she loved dressing up. She loved games. She loved spending time with her family. And she loved to joke. Perhaps that's not how people think of her. Yes. <laughs> so, I ought to be grateful to Richmond and Hogarth. And indeed, whether it's my invincible optimism or not, I am grateful. Nothing could have suited better all through those years when I was creeping about like a rat struck on the head and the aeroplanes were over London at night and the streets dark and no penny buns in the window. Moreover, 
nowhere else could we have started the Hogarth Press, whose very awkward beginning had rise in this very room on this very green carpet. Here, that strange offspring grew and throve. It ousted us from the dining room, which is now a dusty coffin, and crept all over the house. That was Peter Fulliger, who is reading there from Virginia Woolf's diary, reflecting on her time in Richmond. And Peter's the author of Virginia Woolf in Richmond and one of the people behind the campaign to have the statue erected. We've spoken before. We spoke about a year ago, I think. How does it feel now that it has happened? I don't think there are words that can describe it. To actually see it there, where people can go and sit next to her, take a selfie if they wish, or just to sit and look over the river where she used to walk with her dogs sometimes, I think it's an incredible, incredible achievement. It's really nice, actually. You mentioned people walking past and engaging. And it's lovely getting the reaction of children, which is so unfiltered, right? You know, they haven't got... They're not coming to it with the prejudices or or any of the kind of backstories or or their own emotions about statues. And the first thing that they've been doing is not even climbing all over it like a climbing frame, but treating her like a a real person. They've been sort of putting their hand on on her knee and touching her hands and looking at her face. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's lovely to watch it working to watch the statue working on other people absolutely and i think if i think if virginia were here herself um obviously she didn't have children not necessarily her choice but she did adore her sister vanessa's children and i think if she could see the children kind of sitting next to her sitting in her lap touching her hands looking up at her face i think she would look down and i think she would be really really happy with it I think it's nice to uncouple her from Bloomsbury a little bit. I think it is, and I think a lot of people often forget that she lived in Richmond. It's where the Hogarth Press was born. I think it's only right that Richmond is celebrated as a place of literary importance, as well as Monk's House and Asham and Charleston. Mm. And I think there are already focal points in those areas. You know, you can go to Monk's House, you can go to Charleston, they have a festival. This is more casual. You're, you're more likely to encounter her by mistake here. You have to, make, you have to really go out of your way, <laughs> you know, drive down a country road to get to Monk's House. Whereas, you know, this is, this is an accidental meeting. You might meet her and have known her previously but not realise that the mm. statue was here. And it may be for some people the first time they encounter her as a person. And the first time they see her face at all. I, I think so. And, and reading her diaries when she walked around Richmond, it's almost as if she could meet herself uh, walking by the river with her dog. And when she did walk around Richmond and she wrote in her diaries, she was very much observing everything going around. And I'm sure at some point, if the statue was here when she was, I'm sure at some point she would have come across it and probably written about it. And hopefully that's what's going to inspire, especially women and girls, in the future. So I'm speaking here with Professor Maggie Hum, who we've spoken to before on the Virginia Woolf podcast in previous episodes. Um, first of all, how important is it that, that you're here today? Well, it's absolutely crucial that Wolf is as well known as she can be. Um, and the more people that hear about her, the more people that see her, in 
situ, uh, the better, really. Added one question for you, which is if a member of the public came along and discovered this statue and consequently discovered Virginia Woolf and then decided to read her work for the first time, what text would you recommend to start off with? Oh, well, it would have to be my favourite, which is To the Lighthouse. It's quite short. It's only 92,000 words. <laughs> but you'll fall in love with the characters, particularly with Mrs Ramsey. And my favourite, because I've written a novel about it, is Lily Briscoe. Uh, she's an extraordinary character, unlike any other character in Wolf. So I would start with that. But then if you're a little bit worried, just go for the diaries, because they're just full of wonderful descriptions of women in the early 20th century, all her friends. They're very bitchy sometimes. They're very, very funny. So just go for the diaries. And also the diaries have some wonderful accounts of Richmond as well. If you were a local living in the area and you wanted to know what it was like to be here about 100 years ago, you know, there's nothing better really to give you just an insight into into what Richmond was like at the time. So we've got the statue in front of us now. I'm looking at it and I can see Virginia Woolf sitting on a bench and she's sort of cast as a casual observer looking at life as it walks past. How does that reflect the way that she writes? Well, I don't think it does at all, actually, because Wolf was hardly a casual observer. She was painstakingly careful about details. Once when she went with her husband, Leonard, uh, to his uh, doctor in Harley Street, she started to look at the letterboxes to see that she'd got them all right, ready for her next writing flush. And so I think she wouldn't have been casual at all. She would have been incisive. She would be writing a a wonderful short story about this very location and probably have some very witty things to say about the people around her, no doubt. Yes, and certainly she would have chosen a woman, uh, an elderly woman, and the elderly woman would have been our kind of ears to the whole event, I think. She's had so many elderly women in her works who talk well and describe things well. I'm sure she would have picked one out, not just because I'm an elderly woman. Well, it's starting to rain and the light is fading, so I think I'm going to make my way home. But just before I do, I'm going to take one last look at the statue. And it's really wonderful because I'm seeing other people walk up to it, sit next to it, have their photographs taken with it. And it's really extraordinary to see the statue working, doing its job and getting people to engage with Virginia Woolf. I've arrived back home again after a two-hour train journey and I'm finally getting a chance to process the events of the day. One thing that we learn from Wolf's writing is that people are not wholly one thing or another. To understand them, you might trace a line of cold facts, but then there's the intangible problem of character How do you preserve the memory of one person when one person can be so many people? And Wolfe was familiar with this quandary. She'd written a biography of her friend, Roger Fry. She also wrote Orlando, a fantastical account of the life of her lover, Vita Sackville-West. And her approach to biography, to memorialising, was often imaginative encompassing what she called granite, the hard facts, and rainbow, 
the personality, the essence, the aura. I think her statue fuses both granite and rainbow in the medium of bronze. It's characterful, personable, and it gives us the opportunity to meet Virginia on our own terms. Thank you for listening. The Virginia Woolf podcast was produced by Alistair Elphick. The music was Three Pieces for Piano by Nadia Boulanger and performed by Ellie Welsh. And if you're interested in lectures on literature and the arts, then do head over to literaturecambridge.co.uk. Listener.